Okay, so hello, welcome to the CSDC podcast. So I'm here at CPSA in Toronto, 2017, and we are joined by Paul Thomas, who is a postdoctoral fellow in political science at Carleton University, and David Rayside, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Toronto. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having us. So you were present in Toronto to present uh, your most recent paper on religion and the conservative leadership race of 2017. But before we get to that specifically and your research findings, I wanted to to hear you on a a specific quote that I saw in your paper that I thought was very uh, interesting. So you described the 2017 conservative leadership race as a pivotal event in Canadian political history. That seems very ambitious as a statement. So can you tell us a little bit more about why you think it's such an important event? Well, we wrote those words initially before the results were counted, uh, hoping they would be true, and I, I think they are. This was very much a race between different visions of the Conservative Party and what it could stand for. And if you compare this leadership race to the the first leadership race for the Conservative Party. The first leadership race, you had three candidates running. It lasted, I think, no more than six months. Whereas this race went on for over a year, and at one point or another, there were 17 different people who had thrown their hat into the ring. Uh, Three dropped out in time so that they weren't at the ballot. Uh, One didn't, and so he was on the ballot, even though he officially had said he wasn't running. Um, But the the spectrum of policy ideas on display was more than we've seen in a Canadian leadership race, possibly ever, or at least in recent memory, where you had the very libertarian Maxime Bernier, um, all the way to the strong social conservatives of Pierre Lemieux and Brad Trost, a number of people in between. And so the initial reforming of the Conservative Party in 2003, from the merger of the Reform and the Alliance, was in many ways driven out of electoral desperation, and they knew there was probably going to be an election very soon. This race was much more measured. People thought about it. They had the chance to decide. And so the fact that they had, out of that process, picked someone who, if not uh, a confirmed social conservative, definitely has socially conservative leanings and sympathies for that campaign, uh, was quite interesting. It shows in some ways that a lot of the beliefs we've had about Canadian politics, um, that religion doesn't matter anymore, were a bit pushed aside. And so we'll see a very different lineup going forward in terms of what policies will come out from, say, Andrew Scheer, as compared to, say, the libertarianism of Maxime Bernier about getting rid of supply management, getting rid of... um, Oh, gosh, his other big one was uh, to and say transfers to the provinces on healthcare. And so we did, in some ways it was more of a status quo, but in other ways it was a bit of a rebirth of social conservatism in Canada uh, to show that they still had policy influence and the ability to sway and leadership race. I'd um, add to that a little bit. Uh, there have been certainly some commentaries in the aftermath of the convention about here being uh, Harper light or Harper with a smile or Harper 2.0 um, and emphasizing continuity in a way. But there are a couple of subtle differences between Sheard. So subtle differences doesn't necessarily say pivotal. But on the other hand, these could be pivotal in sharpening the distinctions between the, the Conservative Party of Canada and the Liberal Party of Canada, for example, or the Liberal Party and the NDP. 
One is the tilt, the social uh, conservative tilt, because Harper certainly was a social conservative. I don't think there's any serious doubt about that. But he prioritized uh, what a lot of people would call neoliberalism. He prioritized reducing especially the federal uh, government's control and regulatory uh, um, uh, apparatus and taxation levels. And there was really never any question about that. That was the priority. Um, with Scheer, it's a bit harder to figure out because he has done two things that um, uh, amplify some of what was happening during the Harper years. He has certainly pitched, and the, the paper, the data analysis uh, in the paper confirms this, he has, has really done a lot of pitching to social conservatives in the campaign, despite saying he would not prioritize that. But, you know, the truth is in the messaging during the campaign. And he has also acquiesced to certain amount, a certain amount of pandering to nervousness about immigration levels in general and uh, Muslim immigration in particular. So now the Harper government did that right towards the end, but we might be seeing in that sense, a sharper distinction between the conservatives and the other two parties. And there is this more libertarian current within the party, whether Bernier's support really did support that radical libertarianism is a separate issue. And I don't know what kind of position and what kind of room Bernier is going to be given in the caucus, I suspect, not as much as he hopes. It seems from your research findings that although Bernier definitely you know, held the liber uh, libertarian line, that he did also espouse certain social conservative views. Is that correct? In some ways, it was framing what sort of the libertarian values that he had in a way that would resonate with social mm -hmm. conservatives. So, for example, Bernier said, I want to get rid of foreign aid. Canada should... And in some ways, he was ideologically consistent. He said, we should not be bailing out Bombardier. We should not be bailing out anyone, people, businesses, countries should rise and fall on their own merits. But when he said that, he highlighted specifically that the Liberal government had just committed to fund uh, an international program to increase access to abortion in developing countries. And so, yes, it was ideologically consistent with his uh, libertarian idea of not helping other developing countries, but he really made sure to, to point that out. And the same on free speech. He highlighted that... Uh, say, for example, Bill C-16, which is about improving protection for transgendered people. He argued that it would uh, inhibit uh, the ability of people to speak freely on their beliefs, perhaps more socially conservative. The same with uh, M103, which was the motion to condemn Islamophobia. And he said that would also curtail the ability to criticize Islam. We should not have this special place. And so whilst he was not going outside of his principles, he certainly framed it in a way that showed his sympathies. And it is also notable um, in a number of the rankings that came out from pro-life groups. Bernier, he was never in the top tier, but he was not at the bottom. He, I think Campaign Life Coalition graded him as a C, um, whereas Andrew Scheer was a B. Uh, most of the others were D or F. Um, so he was in that somewhat sympathetic. He's not going to act on it, but he, he would not curtail the activism that others might want. Um, whereas Andrew Scheer took more steps to show a sympathy, an overt personal sympathy as a Christian in his messaging. Bernier straddled that line a bit more by just making his existing messaging more appealing to those from that movement. 
But I think it was overwhelmingly uh, opportunistic. There's no indication that Bernie actually believes any of that stuff. And there's no reason to believe he does, even if it's framed in free speech. Um, And so uh, Bernier, at Bernier's leader, my guess is that social conservatism and anti-immigrant sentiment wouldn't have had much play at all. I mean, he really is totally preoccupied by reducing the the ambit of government. Mm -hmm. And I doubt that he would have had much truck with people now. He might not have lasted as a leader either. Uh, for that, but it was a electoralist, in other words, not, uh, it didn't come out of any genuine conviction evidenced by years of advocacy around free speech. And it sounds as though it's become impossible for a leadership candidate to win uh, the leadership of the Conservative Party without pandering to the social conservative faction, which sort of speaks to sort of a, a passage or a like a striking evolution of the Conservative Party from red Toryism to, uh, to what we see today? Does your research confirm, uh, confirm that? Uh, I, yes. I, yes. I mean, it was fascinating to see, and I think we, we sort of plotted it, as to the only candidate in the race to make any references about the need to protect, say, the LGBTQ community was Deepak O'Brien, who received, I think, 0.5% of the total votes. And he, in some ways, stood apart because his campaign, what he said from the beginning when he launched his campaign in, I think it was July 2016, was that he would be the candidate of inclusion and that he was running in the race to make sure people remembered other traditionally disadvantaged groups. Uh, when he got up to speak in one of the debates that the, the Manning Center, which is sort of a right-wing think tank, held in Ottawa, he said, when I first came to the Conservative Party, or to the Reform Party, I told Preston Manning, this is still a racist party. And he said, well, you know what, we'll work together to finish this out. And he made it clear that this was part of his mission to try to bring the Conservative movement more inclusively. Uh, that he was the only one in that way. Uh, to be fair, Michael Chong made more, and some others, had a lot of messaging on the need to be inclusive of all religions. They presented, they said they needed to avoid identity politics. They needed to uh, be embracing of recent immigrants. And Michael Chong stressed his own family history as the child of immigrants to Canada. But he didn't take any stances that would be seen as um, overtly coming out in favor of socially progressive policies on abortion, LGBTQ rights, Some of them did during the campaign, for example, vote in favor of C-16 uh, to protect transgender identity, but they didn't, they didn't put out a press release about it. They just voted, and that was that. Um, it was a very silent. It, no, some candidates did not speak against, say that I am in favor of restricting abortion, I am in favor, but they didn't make an effort to speak out in support of those policies. But, and this is... This is a, um a longer story, and it, we spend a significant amount of time in the book on religion uh, and Canadian party politics, both provincially and federally, and talking about the number of parties, including the Conservative Party of Canada, that recognized uh, uh, the significance of the social conservative current within the party and um, engaged in this subtle process of both welcoming that current but not giving them too much, and especially not giving them stuff that would end up on the front pages of newspapers. 
So there was this subtle game, sometimes a very um, uh, oblique messaging to social conservatives, particularly evangelical Protestants, about the fact that we love you know we love you, but we're not going to talk about abortion, or we're not going to, especially domestic abortion. So that's part of the story of Stephen Harper is focusing on uh, lower taxation uh, and deregulation and focusing on you know supporting oil and gas frankly, uh, but keeping social conservatives at least content enough that they wouldn't, it's not that they would vote for another party, but that they might not vote at all or form a French party. And you see the same dilemma, the same dilemma in the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, and you see the same dilemma within both the Wild Rose Party and the Progressive Conservative Party of Alberta, and to some degree you see the same thing within the Liberal Party of British Columbia, uh, of this delicate balancing act between keeping the folks in the fold, saying we have your, you have our ear, but not giving in on things that are too high profile. And does the election of uh, Andrew Shear does that indicate same story? Same story. Where could we interpret it as a shift towards more social? Well, there's a fork in the road, and we don't know. They're not a single fork in the road. We don't know because look at what happened in Ontario with the election, and in the Wildrose Party with the election of very obviously social conservative leaders, in the in the shape of Patrick Brown in Ontario and Brian Jean in Alberta. Both social conservatives, no, no serious observer questioned that. And both of them then spent a huge amount of time at the beginning saying either, no, 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 I'm not really a social conservative, or I'm not going to do anything about this. And in the case of Patrick Brown, marching in pride and stuff like that. So because Scheer is a social conservative and has been painted as such in the media in the aftermath of the election, he might feel he has to really work hard at denying that or limiting the potential damage from that. The interesting, is one of the incidents from the campaign that I found helped to show where Andrew Scheer was positioned was there's an annual uh, pro-life rally, anti-abortion rally, depending on your point of view, held in Ottawa at the Parliament buildings. It's called the March for Life. And Brad Trost, who is one of the candidates seen as more socially conservative, along with Pierre Lemieux, another, came and spoke directly to the crowds. Andrew Scheer had a message conveyed on his behalf by an MP who supported his candidacy. And so he wasn't directly there speaking to the crowd, but he made sure his name was known. And that kind of one-step remove expressions of sympathy in some ways makes me think, well, see... The conservative, a conservative government led by Andrew Scheer would not necessarily take strong policy positions on pro-life issues, but would allow pro-life backbenchers greater freedom. So under Stephen Harper, and one of the things that we've researched previously, the conservatives took great pains to, the conservative leadership under Harper took great pains to restrict backbench activism on abortion or life issues. I could see Andrew Scheer giving that a freer hand and just saying, making it almost a virtue. We are a party that respects people's diversity of opinions, and so I will not stop this activism within my party. It will be interesting to see to what extent um, 
the broader public or the media narrative that forms, whether it's seen as him truly being embracing of free speech and what have you, or if it's seen as a backwards way of him getting a socially conservative agenda forward by proxy. Uh, with St when Stephen Harper did it at first, he, in 2007, allowed a bill that would have given greater legal to protection to uh, fetuses that were harmed in the act of a, of a robbery. Harper supported it and then was accused of having a hidden agenda and after that point tried to shut everything down. Whether the media will do the same for Andrew Scheer, I, I don't know, but I, I would not imagine a direct assault. The one thing that is interesting though, and it, I think perhaps an area where he can make some headway is his promise of restricting or of uh, restricting federal money to universities that do not promote uh, free speech climate on campus. And he specifically highlighted in those promises um, the restrictions that some group, some universities have attempted to make on the ability of pro-life groups to stage um, somewhat graphic, well, actually quite graphic, um, exhibitions of aborted fetuses and what have you. Various universities have restricted that. And he has made the state that no, unless you protect all speech, we will not give you money. And the same as well for people who might want to speak out against trans rights, people who might want to speak out against the accommodation of minority religions. And so that might not change the legal framework of the country, but it's a policy change that would earn him a fair bit of credit. And so those sort of smaller matters that would show sympathy, as David said, mm -hmm. I think, are the kind of things that we'll see. I think that one's an explosive one. So I'm not sure he'll proceed on that. He certainly talked about it, but it is an example of the sort of thing he might try to find. And again, as Paul just said, a lot depends on how the media respond. Uh, the public generally responds to, for example, private members' motions or private members' bills, because if, if they become front page news um, in a way that doesn't help the Conservative Party of Canada's brand, then we might see exactly the same as what we saw in Harper, and that is, you're not going to do this. You're destroying the party. You're 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 affecting our capacity to focus on the issues that we think are important, which are economic issues. It seems, um, and you pointed out in your paper that there's a tension between having to, uh, to to promote social conservative policies during the leadership race, but then having to sort of modify that discourse when you get to a general election. Uh, so. If the party is sort of shifting towards more social conservatism, does, what does that mean in terms of their general ability to get elected at the national level? Well, I mean, that, that idea of the pivot um, is something that's quite well established in the American literature on candidates, nor with the exception of Donald Trump, but typically um, campaigning one way in the primary season to win the nomination and then pivoting towards a more centrist message. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm not doubting we'll see that to some extent. Sheer, compared to some of the, say, Brad Frost or Pierre Lemieux, balanced. It wasn't that social conservative messaging was absent. It was that he also had messages on other things. Trost and Lemieux had social conservative messaging as a much greater proportion of their overall communications. So Sheer probably will continue some of that. Um, the, the true test, I think, will be at the election, whether it is left to party policy or left to backbenchers to their own devices um, to pursue matters. And there, it comes down to a large extent um, with the lottery. Um, private members' business is allocated by lottery, so in some ways it will be where things come up. Uh, the challenge of 
appealing to centrist voters in some ways, though, and this is, comes out of the American literature, there's been a, sort of a negative feedback cycle in the American system where the grassroots voters who might be more conservative think they finally found a true conservative candidate who they vote for in the primary. That person then moves to the center for the election, leading those conservative supporters to become disaffected. And so then the next primary, you have to have someone who seems even more radical to get those votes. Mm -hmm. And to some extent that has now given us Donald Trump. I think if Sheer tacks to the center and becomes truly becomes Stephen Harper 2.0 of trying to shut down social conservative advocacy, you might get a bit of the fool me twice, shame on me situation mm -hmm. and social conservatives actually leaving the party and trying to form something else. I think this is their second, they're giving the conservative party a second chance. They thought Stephen Harper might do what they wanted. Now they have Sheer. If he also fails, then it will be a bit more of a day of reckoning for the party. But, um, I, I want to add one thing. When we, we talk about tracking to the center, we're not really dealing with the conservative party tracking to the center any more than we are the Republican party in the States. We're dealing with an ideologically right-wing party um, that is still deeply, deeply and permanently, well, not permanent, nothing is permanent in politics, but uh, pretty stably committed to lower taxation, to uh, constraining social spending, and so on. So that's not centrism. That's, uh, but it's it's downplaying the more extreme versions of it, whether it's the Maxine Bernier libertarianism, economic libertarianism, or whether it's the Brad Trost, Pierre Lemieux, uh, uh, assertive forms of social conservatism. So a, a certain yeah, pivot, yes, but not really to the center. We're dealing with a kind of asymmetrical system where the conservatives in the 90s, starting in the 90s, but especially in the early 2000s, shifted, as the progressive conservatives in Ontario had done, to the right economically. Um, and uh, the liberals sort of staying in the center, oscillating between center right and center left. So it's a kind of, with the NDP moving somewhat towards the center. Um, so um, it's a pivoting, but there's still going to be enough ammunition on, across the party system to demarcate the parties much more clearly than we saw in the pre-90s period, yeah. when it was often difficult to distinguish liberals and conservatives. You could, uh, and there were differences, but they were much more subtle than they are now, or than they will be, no matter how much pivoting there is. Um, maybe we can turn to your to your research and your, your method specifically. Sure. So in your paper, you uh, analyzed emails sent to list subscribers of, of all the candidates. And you, uh, you ran a content analysis on, on uh, these emails. And you were trying to find what was the, the role of religion in, in the campaign. So can you tell us a little bit about what your findings tell us about the, the place and the role of religion? Sure. Um, so it was interesting to see how it played out over time. Uh, so we, as you said, we subscribed to the emails from all of the candidates. Um, some didn't send emails, or at least not emails that we received. So. In the end, we had messages, I think, from 11 of the 14 candidates who were on the ballot. The way we did the coding was just to set up a framework of words for various themes that, and also trying to account for the fact that some of the messages would be a bit more coded, a bit less direct, uh, to pull out a sample of emails that had those words and then look at them and code them as being either supporting a more restrictive position on, say, abortion or a more progressive position on minority accommodation. What we found was that the messaging changed over time throughout the campaign, and that was quite unexpected for us. 
Um, when it began, so over, overall, um, if I'm remembering it rightly, there was about 11% of the messages in the campaign had to deal with uh, the accommodation of minority religions, and it was about 9% or so had to deal with socially conservative policy positions. In a negative way? Um, just in general, just, uh, of anything. But what was interesting for us was that the, the proportion of socially conservative messaging was far higher in the period after membership sales stopped. And the reason that's important is because the membership sale... So the, the leadership race was held on May 28th. And to vote in that race, you had to have been a party member for at least 60 days prior. And the main way that candidates... It's, it's a funny thing, whereas normally you try to mobilize voters, um, here you're actually trying to increase the number of voters. You're trying to have more people buy memberships, in particular the people who support you, so that then they can shift the race in your favor. When on, I think it was April 29th, the party released the total membership figure, and different candidates put out press releases claiming the total strength of how many people their campaign signed up. And it was quite surprising to see the socially conservative candidates had substantial numbers of people that they claimed to have signed up. And then there were also socially conservative advocacy organizations who claimed to have convinced even more people to sign up. And so someone who was a, a campaign strategist at that point might suddenly realize that the, the weight of the people who will be voting in this race is much more skewed towards the socially conservative side than we had imagined. And we saw that there was a, more than a doubling of the volume of messages pertaining to socially conservative positions, all but one of which, uh, sorry, all but one candidate of which it was on the, we need to restrict this. And some of that was covert messaging saying we need to protect freedom of speech. Some of that was overt messaging saying we need to protect the plight of persecuted Christians around the world. Um, or happy Easter, Christ is risen, alleluia, various things like that. Um, and so for our, we weren't expecting to see that pivot, nor what our expectation had been was that after the membership sales closed, the incentive for the average candidate would be to try to steal people who had been originally signed up by someone else. And so in some ways, candidates might have an incentive to position themselves as broader, as someone who is not, if you're Kelly Leach, not just about restricting immigration, but someone who has a, a better policy on economic development or what have you. And instead we saw the opposite where a number of candidates sort of doubled down on, I am going to, I am quite a socially conservative candidate. Um, we had Aaron O'Toole who was seen up to that point as being a centrist, having pastors, former pastors who are now members of commons, um, talking about his socially conservative credentials. And you saw much more of this appeal to um, that constituency. Again, as a total volume of email messages, it was probably in the second period, I think it got up to about 7% direct, only socially conservative, and 12% that included both messages on accommodation or socially conservative issues. But it was more than double what had been in the early period. So the candidates seemed to get a message that they had better burnish their socially conservative credentials um, leading into the race. Uh, okay. And so you talk in your paper also about the, let's say, the evolution of religion in Canadian politics, how that shifted and how the Conservative Party has today become like the party of believers in general, well, Christian believers, 
most probably. For the most part, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that sort of arc? Sure. Did, did you want to? Well, um, there's um, there's an accidental part of it and an ideological part of the shift. Um, the accidental part um, is that, um, maybe that's the wrong word, that as the Conservative Party federally, and we see the same thing in a couple of pro few provinces, uh, shifted to the right on economic grounds, they um, they found themselves, uh, or they they increased their support among social conservatives. Now that's partly because evangelical Protestant and some conservative Catholic um, conservatives are also individualist in in their approach to the economy. Uh, although it doesn't theologically make a lot of sense necessarily, but but we know that also from the American experience. It's, and it's also true in Canada. So um, even though party leaders, like you, you think of Mike Harris, for example, who had no interest in social conservatism, none, right? Um, and Ralph Klein, no interest in social conservatism but knew that, if anything, the party that they refashioned or the parties they refashioned had a lot of social conservative supporters, whether it's because of support in rural areas or, you know, whatever. So, had to pander. Um, and then, again, added to that, there are, some, there are a lot of evangelical Christians who also believe in a reduced state, who believe in charity but not social provision, and uh, who are concerned about violence and crime and so on, so parties figure that out. But there, it, it had to do with, in a sense, the disillusion on the right of the brokerage model of Canadian politics, or Ontario politics, or Alberta politics, for that matter, and, and, and the development of more clearly ideologically right-wing parties. And it, it took a lot more social conservatives out of other parties because there were social conservatives in the Liberal Party and, and the New Democratic Party, even uh, a few. And at the same time, those parties were developing views that were more clearly pro-choice and pro-LGBT rights and so on. So the social movement activism of the 60s and the 70s slowly was, uh, more quickly with the NDP, was influencing the other parties. So social conservatives were just drawn to these newly right-wing or more right-wing conservative parties, but the other parties seemed less open to those voices. So you got a new form of polarization uh, between parties, even though economic issues were really the, still and always have been and always will be the priority of uh, uh, Right wing, most right wing parties in outside of Atlantic Canada, most right wing parties in Canada. Also, I mean, just to even go back earlier into Canadian history, there had been we sort of see how this plays out, especially at the provincial level in the realm of education. There had been a historic tendency for Catholics to favor the Liberal Party okay. and for Protestants to favor um, the Conservative Party. This both federally and provincially, by and large. And as time went on, the messaging, the increasing focus of conservative parties on more neoliberal economic growth policies tended to appeal more to evangelical Christians who generally tended to want a smaller government that didn't tell them how to raise their family, that didn't intervene and say you can't spank your children, but didn't. It was a it was a similar 
ideological mindset of less government is better government. We should be free economically, we should be free socially. Um, whereas the conservative Catholics, as David was yeah. saying, gradually got pushed out. Uh, even in the 1990s, there was actually something, they still may be around, but much smaller, something called Liberals for Life. And it was a group, um, predominantly Catholic, that tried to get pro-life candidates elected in the Liberal Party because it had traditionally done very well among Catholic voters. And around the time that same-sex marriage le was legalized, those voters, by and large, either became more attracted or, as David implied, became less welcome in the Liberal Party and moved over to the Conservatives. And so you also had this realignment in denominational terms. So for, historically, there had been the Protestant Conservatives, Liberal Catholics, um, and now you had much more, how religious are you? Uh, winding up in the Conservative Party. Are you someone who goes to church regularly? Are you someone who who wants re religious instruction or more socially conservative instruction for your children, especially? Then you're much more likely to be in the Conservative Party. Uh, and conversely, if, are you someone who's worried about increasing equality? Are you someone who's wor who is worried about social justice? You're probably going to be in a party on the left. Um, there are a number of uh, Christian denominations that are awkwardly split because they have a focus on both charity and on sort of, you know, more socially conservative values. So you, you will find, say, Mennonites in both parties, but by and large, you have that realignment. What's been interesting, what we talk about a bit in this paper, is that the potential for a further realignment with a lot of people, and you, you see this more internationally as well, with more socially conservative issues being settled. So abortion is unlikely to be changed in Canada. Same-sex marriage is unlikely to be changed in Canada. What you find is that there is still a desire to maintain the more broad Christian character of Canada, where we would celebrate Christmas as a public holiday, where we would have Easter as a public holiday, the, the sort of the symbols of the state, unless to accommodate minority religions. The idea of creating, uh, and we've seen actually in Ontario, very strong protests around the creation of Muslim prayer rooms and people opposing it. What's interesting is that the social conservative, be they Catholic, be they Protestant, what have you, um, people who are opposed to this are finding odd alliances amongst some highly secular people who are opposed to Islam on the grounds that it is restrictive of women's rights, restrictive of sexual diversity. And so you have seen some of these axes forming in Europe, where you had, um, particularly in the Netherlands, very anti-Islamic messages coming from gay politicians um, in France with the National Front saying, and in Quebec, in Canada is where it's gone furthest, with the PQ government saying, we need to protect the secular character of Quebec by banning religious symbols in a move that would be also likely supported by a lot of conservative Protestants and Catholics, but for drastically different reasons. And so going into the 2015 conservative, or 2015 federal election, we saw signs of this with Stephen Harper on the one hand, attempting to downplay the social conservatism within his party, but on the other hand, floating the idea of a federal ban on wearing the kneecap or talking about a barbaric cultural practices tip line. And so what we had wondered was whether there would be a further realignment, and we, there has been an increased focus on those issues, but it hasn't led to the disappearance of those who are still concerned with abortion. So the, it's more adding a new front to the battle as compared to 
those people who are concerned with abortion are still concerned. The people who want, who oppose same-sex marriage are now still active trying to save restrict trans rights. Or at the provincial level in Ontario, you have a lot of mobilization now around parents' rights to restrict their child's sexuality. Um, if their child identifies as transgender, is that grounds for the child to be moved from a home if the parent doesn't support it? And so those further aspects of family law are still being played out. And so you, you still have a social conservative activism on that, but in addition to this growing side on minority religious accommodation. Um, a, a couple of observations to add to that. First of all, when we deal with polarization, we have to have a bit of, correct between social conservatism and others, we have to keep in mind two things. This is not the, the American party system. The polarization in, in the U.S. is much more substantial than it is here. And that will always be true. The proportion of even evangelical Protestants, let alone conservative Catholics, who vote for conservative parties is significantly lower than it is in the United States, where it is virtually an article of faith, if you'll pardon the pun, among evangelical Protestants, who are, first of all, a much larger portion of the population in the United States, to vote Republican. And there's no article of faith there. At least it's a pale shadow of its American counterpart. The other factor to consider is the huge shifts in public opinion um, uh, in favor of, generally speaking, the recognition of sexual diversity. That's also true in the United States. But uh, a significant shift in uh, public opinion towards reproductive choice. So it narrows the room for governments to behave. It, the, so we see, this, we see this realignment, but it's tempered, as in so many things in, in Canada. Now, in terms of religious recognition, minority religious recognition, we also have to remember, we clearly do, that the conservatives lost, right? So... Um, uh, and so at some level, it's been surprising the extent to which uh, the issue of accommodating uh, immigrant and uh, accommodating immigration, and really it's all about Muslims. It is all about Muslims. Um, uh, it's been surprising the extent to which that, um, that has played, because even though there are some specific questions around which there's lots of public support, for particular positions. The overall tone of that debate was pretty resoundingly defeated. Now, am I confident that that's going to be the case going forward? No, not hugely confident, but I do think we're not dealing with quite the same as we saw, we have seen in the United States. The question of immigration, support for high levels of immigration is still very strong in Canada, uh, including, uh, if anything, stronger in Quebec than it is in the rest. There is a certain anti-Muslim sentiment or anxiety about, about um, uh, Muslims in this country that is possible to stoke politically, but mostly what we have seen until now, and again, things can change, mostly what we've seen in uh, outside of Quebec is a reluctance to go overboard in politicizing those issues. Um, I'd like to think that that will continue, but... Um, Again, we might be entering new terrain, and you know Harper tried it again in the lead up to the 2015 election. But he, you know, again he lost. Uh, the Pauline Marois government in Quebec tried it in the last provincial election. She lost. Um, it doesn't mean that it isn't a powerful current, but let's let's just wait to see how that plays out and whether or not, as has been, you know, even the the question of 
prayers in Muslim schools, one of the things, one of the most striking aspects of that, uh, uh, I'm sorry, prayers in public schools, Friday prayers in public schools, which emerged as a way of public schools to accommodate very large Muslim populations, and in some cases prevent kids from just leaving school midday Friday, right? So what do you do? Your principal, you got to cope with this problem. Uh, it's a pragmatic problem. Have we seen any significant provincial Ontario politicians taking up that issue? No. Why is that? Because people recognize that it's an explosive issue, and people recognize that there are lots and lots of immigrants uh, in Ontario, Canada has what some people would say is the highest immigration rate in the world. Can you really turn your back on immigrants if you want to win electoral office? Well, <laughs> most party leaders have figured out you can't. Now, can you win office by specifically targeting Muslims? Well, a lot of other immigrants think, gee whiz, if they start being told what they can and cannot wear, am I next? So it's... You know, it's hard to predict that we're going to follow the path that the American Republicans have followed and that Brexit voters seem to follow. Um, you know, uh, populism is a real, anti-Muslim populism is a real and, and present threat. But are we going to go down that routes, those routes? I'm not sure we are. All right. David Rayside, Paul Thomas, thanks for joining us on the CSDC podcast for a super interesting conversation and have a, a great CPSA, the rest of CPSA in Toronto. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.